Well, I hope that you had a great Christmas, and uh, if you're like me, you still got another gathering or two. Uh, I'm sure some of our folks are still gathering, even today. And so, um, it, it's uh, it's a beautiful and wonderful time of the year, but it also can stir, you know, um, memories and, and pain and, and angst, and, and for lots of reasons, as, as we know. And so, hopeful that, that the Lord has been really present and kind. And if not, perhaps this morning will reveal Himself in a, in a particularly comforting way to you. Um, I would venture to say that most of us, um, at some point in our life, have been in a place where what's happening in our life is really uh, difficult to see God's presence, right? Has anybody ever been there where it's like, man, I, I, Lord, I, I know that you say you're good and you've promised good for me, but it's really difficult to see what you're doing and where you are in these moments. And, and you know that if you've been there, and some of you may be there even now, and uh, in those moments, Satan is, is quick to begin to whisper in our ear, isn't he? He's quick to begin to say, yeah, you see, God doesn't care about you, right? Or God doesn't exist. If God existed, would this really be going on? Or if he does exist, he certainly doesn't care about you, right? And that, that's certainly the, the darker side of it. Maybe, maybe you're struggling somewhere in the middle, Right where you, you still have strong faith, but you're just like Lord, I, I'm, I I don't know. Like this is this is not what I thought this season would be, um, and I don't know how to reconcile your love and your goodness with what I'm seeing in my life right now. And so it can be tempting to believe Satan's lies in those moments because it's it's real and, it, and it's difficult, right? And um, over the last few weeks, as we've looked at uh, Matthew's beginning of the gospel, Matthew chapter one, we, we've, we've seen that he's gone to great lengths to make sure that we know that this isn't, that God didn't stumble into the idea of sending Jesus, that this is what he's been working toward from the very beginning. We've, we've looked at genealogies and the chaos of history and how the Lord uh, worked in and through and in spite of all of that. And, and really, one of the big ideas is that the Lord has a big picture. The, big, the Lord has a big view of history. He's not shaken by the, the ups and downs in our lives. He's not shaken by the, the things that, that freak us out. He, he knows what he's working toward even when we can't see it, and he invites us to trust him in that. That's a, that's a big takeaway. And perhaps it's easy for you to sort of acknowledge that, yeah, well, I, I get it. The Lord's been working, you know, uh, to make sure that things were, were, were set up for Jesus to come. I mean, that's kind of priority one in the, you know, heaven's headquarters, right? Like that, that makes sense that, that the Lord was, you know, intricately involved in all of those details, which is a beautiful testimony to the, the, the existence of God and the divinity of Jesus and the gospel itself is to, to uh, look into those details in which for hundreds and thousands of years, um, the, that God had been, you know, prophesying through his prophets that the Lord would come, the Messiah would come in these ways. And so it, it really stacks up in some incredible evidence. If you've never, if you're, a, if you're here and you're still, a, if you're a skeptic, if you're sort of checking out Christianity, I would encourage you to do some, some, uh, some real study of those things. And, and you'll see that this is not a faith where you have to sort of check your intellectual ability at the door, right? You don't have to put your brain under the seat and just wait for an emotional uh, feeling to come. Rather, this is something you can actually engage your mind with and see that the Lord has done this incredible work. And so um, that's, that's been a big point. The reason that Matthew started his gospel the way that he did is to make sure that we know this is what God has been working toward from the beginning. And perhaps you can acknowledge that. Again, the Lord's at work in the bigger details and he's going to stay faithful in the ups and downs. You get that when it comes to Jesus. But what I want to do today is to take this story, this uh, familiar but kind of bizarre story of the Magi coming to Jesus and bringing the gifts. And I want to look at it from this zoomed out picture of history and use it to, to show us that, that not only is God concerned about the details and going to remain faithful when it comes to his work for Jesus, you know, and, and accomplishing that, but also for individuals like you and I, that he has a long-term view in mind and, and he's working toward a long-term good for your life and mine, even when we can't see it. Okay. And so that, that's, that's my encouragement. That's what I hope we can take away uh, from today. And so we're going to, we're going to use this and we're going to date it back. It comes at a cool time because uh, just under a year ago, the beginning of, of February of this year, we started the book of Daniel and we spent several months in Daniel. And, and if you remember, there was a connection uh, in, in what the Lord did in Daniel's life and these strange men known as the Magi showing up at Jesus's home um, not long after his birth. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to try to connect some big dots and then zoom back in. So we're going to zoom out for a bit, connect some big dots in the Lord's faithfulness in the life of Daniel in particular and the impact that it, it had uh, hundreds of years later. 
um, in his work, you know, in God's work in bringing Jesus to bear and, and opening up the gates of, of heaven to the nations. So we're going we're to see that, but then we're going to zoom back in and try to look at our own life and how we can take away from that. So, so that's where we're headed today. Uh, so this story, again, um, it, it's familiar. You, you may or may not, I guess I started to say you may or may not have gotten a Christmas card with, with a picture of this on it, but I guess that's not really a thing. But Christmas cards just come with our pictures on it nowadays. So um, I guess that, that's, that's a thing of the past. But you've seen a painting, you've seen an image, you've seen something, right, with, with these three individuals, sometimes called kings, sometimes, you know, pictured on camels, oftentimes in lots of um, garb that seems curious for somebody who's riding a camel across the desert. I don't know that that's the attire I would have chosen, but maybe that's what they did, right? So there's a lot of familiarity when you think of the, the magi or the wise men coming to Jesus. We, we have pictures, right? We have, we have images that have been in children's storybooks and in Christmas cards and images and story all over. Our lives have been sprinkled with this, this idea of, okay, what, is, what, what, what did this look like? And in reality, when we think about what do we know about them, well, honestly, a lot of what you think you know is, is just really not in the Bible. Um, and so they weren't kings, first of all, despite what the song says. They weren't kings. Um, second of all, there may or may not have been three of them. We actually don't see that in the scripture. There could have been more. There could have been just two. It does seem that there's at least plural, so there's at least two, but it could have been more. Um, we actually don't know if they were on camels. They could have been. Um, they were likely traveling with a huge um, caravan of people. Um, the, the, the status that they did have um, would have, would have uh, warranted them traveling with a huge um, just posse of people to, to care for them and to prep them. These are not folks that are they're roughing it on their way across the desert on this journey. So who were these wise men or magi, depending on your translation? And that, and that actually begins part of the issue is this word magi is not real translatable into English. There's not a, there's not a word that, that fits well. Um, with that, because it, it, mean, it means something specific in this context that really doesn't translate real well. It, it is obviously that the, you, you can begin to see the connection with our word magic, right, and magician, and, and that's not a totally disconnected um, correlation there. However, th- there's, there's are not just, you know, uh, workers of the, of the dark arts. These are not magicians in this day and age. So the magi were, were people who... Um, <clears throat> It really had become um, a, a tribe or this, this, uh, this astute kind of group of people in the ancient world. And we see it mentioned in the Old Testament, specifically and most clearly in Daniel, where these were a highly educated group of people. So this becomes sort of this societal um, influencers that, that really, um, you know, university systems weren't in place quite the same way. But if you look at Babylon in specific and the impact that Babylon had on history and what they did, as you see in Daniel's life, which we're going to get to in just a moment, uh, is, is they were very intentional with the shaping of the worldview. Greece took it to a whole nother level whenever they're like, hey, we want this kingdom to not just be under our rule, but also under the same language so that we can have this influence and impact. And so Babylon kind of began that with, with this uh, system of, of indoctrination or worldview shaping or education. And those who kind of sat at the head of that were these, these magistrates, these, these magi. They were the, the most highly educated people. And yes, they were studying the stars, right? So there is some astrology in there and some astronomy, but it's, the, and so there is some superstition, but it's not purely superstition, right? They're breaking some commandments. These are not like holy faithful people. I don't want to give you the wrong idea, but there is some superstition, but there's also a whole lot of hard science where these guys are actually observing the stars. They're actually observing the movements of the earth. They are actually pursuing truth. And there seems to be, um, at least with these gentlemen, um, a religious bent or angle or aim at their studies and their pursuits. Okay? They seem to be religious people who believe in a God and, and in demons, not likely the, the God of the Bible, but they have been influenced by that, and we'll see that in just a minute. And so, so that is, is these people that they, they have this sort of status in the Eastern world. They come from the East, um, and, and sort of they are also become sort of have legal pool, uh, you know, the, the law of the Medes and Persians, there's a lot to sort of trace back. And, and it remains this, this group of people that are studying, observing, and seeking 
the truth. They are intimately involved with who becomes king and, and, and watching the movements throughout history, right? They're very interested in who is becoming king, not just in the place where they are, right, in the east, but also, um, you know, here in, in Jerusalem. They, they, are, they are interested in all of that. So they had elements of religion woven into their studies. And what we can connect pretty pretty confidently. It's, it's not explicit in the Bible that, that this is uh, a firm connection, but pretty confidently we, can, we could say that these, these magi uh, that are coming um, in response to the star that they have seen in this chapter that we read that Matthew intentionally places in here. If you think about it, it's a curious story, isn't it? But Matthew intentionally places it in his account of the story of Jesus. And it's important for us to, to keep in mind that this is, not, um, this is not right after, like they're not still in the manger here. Okay, so some of the Christmas cards you know, project that, that they're still in the manger and the wise men kind of come there and kneel down and give gifts there. If you look at how Matthew is telling his story, uh, he, he's way out in history for 1 through 17, looking at how we got to this place of, of Jesus even coming. And then in 18, he sort of zooms in and says, now here's how the birth took place, right? And then we end in, in 25, seeing that, that, you know, he worked in this way. Daniel responded, was faithful to his wife, and they had the son. They called him Jesus. And that's, that's a period, right? And we're going to transition now. He says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Um, and so there's a period of time there that happens. It's not super clear to us, but we need, we need, as we zoom out and we realize that he's not giving a, a moment by moment, a, you know, chronological account here. It's chronological, but it's not moment by moment. Um, we see that actually, um, as we kind of study the context here, this is probably up to two years after the birth of Jesus. And so it seems as though Mary and Joseph decided to uh, remain in Bethlehem for a season, right? Perhaps after the family cleared out, you know, they come in and there's no room for them in the end, right? Well, there's a, um, you know, there's a, a census being taken, right? So everybody's been brought in. The hotels are booked. If you've tried to book a hotel somewhere and there's a huge event going on in town, all of a sudden, right, you know, um, Prices have gone up and you can't get a room, right? So there's, there's an influx of people in the small town of Bethlehem. There's no room for them, and that's why they end up in a manger. But it seems as though after the, you know, that sort of passed, and you know, obviously they're not going to pack up and leave the next day uh, after she has given birth, and they still have to get um, their census counted. So it seems like they, they stayed, right? Maybe they found a home. Maybe the innkeeper, after some of those people uh, left, they decided, hey, we're, we're going to stay here. So they reside there in Bethlehem for a season, up to two years even. And after that, we see, we, we get this curious story of these magi, these wise men coming from the east to Jerusalem. Now, why are they coming? What is God doing? Why does Matthew include this story in his account of Jesus? And, and if you think about it, what, one of the things Matthew has been emphasizing um, in the particular people that he included in the, in the genealogy is he's writing, Matthew's writing to a Jewish people. These are the people that, that have been receiving the promises of a, a Messiah, right? And Matthew has them in mind when he's writing. And part of his emphasis is to make sure that these Jewish people know this is the God of the Jews doing this thing and sending this Messiah. This is not a new thing. This is what he's been working toward. But another thing that he seems to be emphasizing subtly is to make sure that the Jews know that this is not just a king for them, but that this is the king of the world. This is the king that will open up salvation to the nations that, that they had heard about. They didn't seem to, uh, you know, be hugely... Um, focused or worried about the nations, but it had been said in their, uh, all the way back to Genesis 12, right? Even when the Jewish nation is started, the whole idea is that God's going to use Abraham and his, um, his family to bless all the world, right? All nations. And then we see the prophets will be mentioning that over and over again. And so Matthew seems to have this focus that, hey, Jews, you need to know not only is this our king who's been promised, but our king is now coming to open up salvation to the nations. Okay, so these people seem to have been influenced by um, Judaism and the, the prophecy. Again, they're worried about kingdoms. They're worried about kings coming and going. And they seem to have been influenced by um, Numbers 24, 17, where um, Balaam's prophet, you know, Balaam's um, 
Oracle says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And it will crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Right? And then uh, another writing is Matthew or Micah 5.2, where it says, But you, O Bethlehem, uh, are, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from the ancient of days. So these men are, are studying the stars. They also want to study prophecy. They believe that God, they, they believe that the world is governed in such a way that what's happening in the, the universe is going to matter to our life here. And they also believe that, that the, the divine powers, right, even though they're not faithful Jewish people, they believe the divine powers speak through prophecy and foretell what is to come. And so they're trying to study these two things, right? Study what has been told about the coming. And so they trace all the way back to Daniel. And it's this fascinating story to think about. Okay, 600 years before, Daniel is taken into captivity. Daniel is chosen, right? They don't take everybody into captivity. Daniel's chosen as one of the, the kind of best and brightest. I don't know this is a curious thing in grade school. I remember they had a gifted program. It's a terrible name for it, right? It's just really, why don't we just give these kids tags that they're better than everybody else, right? It was a weird thing, but they did it. And you would go to class, right? And it was just interesting because kids that were in, um, you know, other, you know, I had, um, I, you know, not IEDs. Um, that's a bomb. What? IEP, thank you. That's a, yeah, they didn't have bombs. Um, <laughs> You know, so they're going, anyway, it's just a curious thing. Like, hey, let's, let's label these kids, uh, you know, gifted. And, and then the, the average kid in class is like, well, why is that kid leaving? Well, he needs more help. Why is that kid leaving? Well, he's really smart. And it's like, well, what about me? It's a really weird and strange strategy. I don't think they do that anymore. So it's probably good. But nonetheless, David or Daniel kind of fits that mold. He's in the gifted program, right? So they, they want to take him and, and bring him out of Jerusalem and take him into Babylon and use him as an influencer. They're going to send him. They're going to pay for his education. They're going to make sure he lives really well. They're going to make sure he looks really good, right? They're going to feed him well, put him in a physical program, and they're going to use him to influence the rest of the world, right? They're going to use him to assimilate these um, Jewish people that they've conquered. They want them to be, you know, extensively assimilated into the Babylonian culture. So what are they going to do? They're going to bring some, some studs in that, that, you know, the rest of Israel will follow and re-educate, re-indoctrinate them. And so Daniel gets taken from his hometown, human trafficked, carried 700 miles, not carried, made to walk 700 miles, likely castrated. We don't know if it's before or after. I can only hope after that journey. But nonetheless, still a really bad day and really headed toward a really bad life that Daniel's taken from his home as a young teenage boy and taken um, his his sexual identity in many ways, right? His genitalia is, is likely removed as a, um, as a part of, of their plan to, you know, um, use him the way they want him to be used. He certainly loses his name. They're given a, he's given a new name. And, and this seems like a really bad season. And it was, but Daniel has a perspective. He knows that God has said, if we don't obey as God's people, he's going to allow us to go into captivity. So Daniel has this in mind as a young man, he's been shaped and formed by the Bible and he doesn't give up and he doesn't just throw in the towel. How many of y'all, if you're, if you're taken by the enemy, right? And you're, you're made to leave your family. They're made to, to take a new name. Um, they, they take your manhood from you in many ways um, would just throw in the towel and say, you know what, what else matters at this point? <laughs> what, what, could, what could I do from this point on that would make any difference? It seems like the Lord is either falling asleep at the wheel, done with us and doesn't care, or he's punishing us in such a way that, man, I just got to take it. But Daniel doesn't do that. It's incredible. In Daniel 1 and 2, we see that Daniel makes a, a resolve to not be defiled. In the midst of that, he makes a resolve to not be defiled. And what we see is that the Lord ends up using that to put Daniel in this place of influence. And so if you're there, I'm not going to re-preach the whole sermon series, but you can check it out if you were here with us as we walk through. We know that in Daniel chapter 2, the King Nebuchadnezzar um, gets a dream or has a dream that freaks him out. And, and a, lot of the, a big theme in Daniel is the succession of kingdoms, right? So Babylon takes over, uh, conquers uh, Judah. Um, and, and that's what brings Daniel into captivity. And, but then Babylon is going to be um, 
taken over by the Medes and Persians, and then um, after that, Greece, and then after that, Rome. And Daniel's going to live through uh, the first couple of iterations. He's going to live through Babylon and Persia, um, and the Lord's going to continually give these visions of, hey, this kingdom won't last forever, and I'm working in the midst of this. This cycle of kingdoms is going to come and go. And Nebuchadnezzar gets one of these dreams, and it freaks him out, and it has this statue, right? And there's different forms of metal in it, and it's representing different kingdoms that are going to come. And then it has this stone in it. So there's uh, the statue, and there's clearly these four powerful kingdoms, but then all of them are going to be taken out by this stone that doesn't seem to come from anywhere. It just comes out of nowhere, and it crushes that statue, and then that stone grows to the point that it takes over the whole earth. That's the, that's the dream in a nutshell. That's my summary of it. Freaks Nebuchadnezzar out. Nebuchadnezzar wants to know, what does this mean? All of his Magi, all of his wise men, all of his interpreters, they have nothing. And he's a wild man because he makes them tell him the dream before they can even interpret it. And they're like, dude, I don't, like, we might be able to connect some dots, bro. We can't read your crazy mind. But he freaks out and he does it anyway. And Daniel is the one who's able to interpret it. And because of that, Daniel gets promoted to be the chief of all of these wise men. He gets put in sort of this, uh, um, chair position or this chief position over this influential university-like system that I mentioned earlier. So in Daniel 2, verse 48, just as a snapshot of this, of this, um, of this story, the, the, the heading there is going to say Daniel is promoted. And we go to verse 48, it says, then the king gave Daniel high honors and made many great, <clears throat> and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. What does that mean? It means Daniel is now in charge of this elite group of people that are becoming the most educated people in the world. Daniel gets placed above them. Okay, so you think about this. This is Babylon. Spirit of Babylon is, is, is rooted back to basically being against the Lord and trying to make a name so great for, for man that they will be recognized of, of, of God. And Satan is all up in that spirit of Babylon. And much of that spirit of Babylon is fueling the pursuit of this education for these magi, these, these wise men, these chief, these people that are these highly educated society. And what does God do? He takes one of his people who has been abused, taken from his home, and he uses them and he puts them right in charge of all those guys. Right in charge of all those guys. And so Daniel begins to learn, no doubt has already learned as a part of his education about some astrology and astronomy things that he had never heard of or thought about. He's studying with them, but you know, now he's in charge. Now he's going to choose the curriculum. Amen. How many of y'all wish that God would do something similar in our public school system today, right? Can we get a Christian to choose the curriculum, please? Can we get somebody to influence the direction of this deal? And that's exactly what God does. He takes Daniel and he puts him right over the, the head of this deal so that what these guys are studying, what they're learning is going to be impacted by Daniel. So he's learning from them. Yeah. Right. But he's going to now teach them, Hey, you know what? We're worried about Kings kingdoms. And that's so much of what's fueling. Nebuchadnezzar is a paranoid man. He's worried about who's going to, you know, how long is my kingdom going to last? Who's my enemies? What should I be worried about? And he believes that he can get some of that information through dreams. So he goes, Hey, y'all study everything you can. And you're on the, like, this is his sort of spiritual army saying, hey, y'all learn everything you can and, and study the, in, the enemy, like, right? The spiritual CIA, like study the enemy, gather all the intelligence you can so that we can be prepared for any attack that might come. That's, that's what's fueling so much of this investment, if you will, from these kingdoms. And Daniel goes, well, my God actually has a lot to say about how all this is going to shake out. And yeah, there's going to be these kingdoms that come and go and come and go, but there's going to be, one, there's going to be a king that comes one day that, that is going to be king over all. And, and we, should, we should be worried about him. And so Daniel starts to tell him, hey, the, the prophets have been saying this, and all the way back in Genesis, we learned about this, and it's all connected here. And so he begins to tell them, and, 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 and like we just can put this together from Daniel's faithfulness in his life to the position he's put in that he influences these men, and we see it play out. We can, we can deduct that whether it was direct influence or indirect that these men who 600 years later show up at Jesus' home with these gifts are no doubt shaped by the influence of Daniel hundreds of years before. What can we learn? Well, a couple things. We're going to end with sort of our response to that at the end, but, but just real quick, you need to know that, hey, we don't have to be scared of learning about science and stuff. They, they're doing some things wrong in that, that, magi that magistrate department, right? For sure. But Daniel steps in 
And the big idea that we can take away is, man, listen, all actual science, hard science, is going to lead us to God. Okay? So church, you don't need to be afraid of learning about science. You don't need to be afraid of learning about the, the, the galaxies and, and the universe. You don't need to be afraid of learning about our body, right? So there's people constantly researching our brain and how our bodies are made up and how we can heal it. And there's different therapies coming out. There's people constantly purchasing uh, rockets so they can go to outer space. That's a new thing, right? But they want to learn about, the, the, like, we don't have to be scared of that. Now, a lot of their motivations are going to be to try to undermine, right, or explain things apart from God. But we can take heart that any actual science is actually going to lead us to worship God. And that's what we see from these guys. As they've been studying the actual science, all of a sudden, God shows up, or you know, puts this star. And there's no real explanation about this star that they see coming from the east. But, but it's, it's significant enough to them that these guys decide to leave their homes and to take what is at least a 40-day journey. Right? If they're on, if, that's if they're average, like it's a seven, eight hundred mile journey. If they're average at 20 miles a day, it's about 40 days, right? So at least several weeks on the road in the desert, right? This is not just like, oh, hey, something happened over at Carbondale. Maybe we'll pop over and see if it's cool, right? No, this is a, this is a long journey. And, and it's significant enough that it's, it's, it's drawing these men who have been, a, the, these are not dummies. These are not guys who are just going on a whim. These are the most educated people probably in the known world at the time. And it leads them to step out and to come to Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews. Why? We can assume because Daniel told them, hey, that king will be the one who will change history. That's the one you're going to want to watch for. So now for 600 years, that education has been passed down. That has been tied into Babylonian education. And as the you know, Babylonian Empire transferred to the Persian Empire and then into Greece, like this, this society of guys keep learning and studying remains, and it transcends that. And here they are in our story in Matthew 2, invading our Christmas story with, with, with these strange details. And what is God doing with these men? Why does God why does Matthew include this, and why does God cause all this to happen? And, and there's, there's a lot of reasons we could sort of uh, probably dwell on. I just want to highlight one today. Uh, and, and, and I want you to see the beauty of what Matthew has been emphasizing, that this is to the Jews, hey, this is our Savior. And he's not just our Savior now. He's coming to be the Savior of the world. So I want you to imagine hundreds of years before God sending Daniel to, to, to Babylon and making him the head of the Magi and and. and changing their curriculum or implementing in their curriculum that they also look at Jewish literature and these prophecies, right? All so he could bring these men to Jesus' home with this incredible scene that is a lot like a coronation, isn't it? If you think about it, Jesus is born king of the Jews. That's what ends up over his cross. But did the Jewish people coronate him? Did they celebrate his arrival? No, right? It's complete obscurity. He can't even get a place to stay. His parents can't even get a place to stay to be, you know, for, for her to give birth. So the Jews, the people he's come to save, the people who he'd been promised to, don't even acknowledge his, his arrival, even though the prophecies are there, right? These connections are there, but they, they, don't, they don't acknowledge his arrival. They don't bring a coronation. But the Lord has set this in place for these men to come from the east, representing very much the Gentile, unclean world, right? Not the Jews, not God's people, representing the world. They come from the east, and they bring gifts fitting for a king, and they coronate this young child who has done nothing, right? He, he's done nothing to conquer. He's done nothing. Like, he is born the king of the Jews, and here they are. To, to do this coordination. And it's this beautiful reality that though the Jewish people don't respond to him in that way, it actually would have been too little if they had, right? If, if just the Jewish people would have been celebrating the coming of this king, it would have been too small of a celebration. So the Lord brings in these guys who John MacArthur would say are actually very influential in making of kings, like that these guys are not kings, as, as the song says, but are actually kind of king makers, right? That they're so influential in the known world that, that really nobody's you know, risen to power or acknowledged to power without these guys coming and, and sort of giving their blessing. Yeah, this is part of what we see in history. This will be, a, this will be a, a ruler. And so the Lord sends them here to bring a coronation. He's, he's setting this in place. And, and, 
and it begins to make it even more clear that this is a savior for the rest of the world and not just the Jews. So God is doing this. He's putting this all together to get the pagans, to get the, 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 the rest of the world who's not a Jewish people to himself. He, he's, he's, he's saying, listen, to the Jews, he's saying, I've been focusing on you for, for thousands of years now, but the focus is not exclusively on you anymore. The, 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 the opportunity for salvation is here. Believe in Jesus and you'll be saved, but I'm now radically going after the nations. This marks a turning point in the, God, in the work of redemption and, and history where Matthew um, starts his, his book by saying, hey, this is a king for the nations, and he ends his book, Matthew 28, with Jesus sending his people where? To the nations, to the ends of the world. So like Matthew is making it clear that, hey, this is a God for the nations. And God is saying, hey, in this arrival, it is now no longer about the Jewish people alone, but through this Jewish people I've been working, through this seed of Abraham, through the root of Jesse, the son of David, like I have brought forth a king who will now be the savior to all nations. If you're not rejoicing in that, you should, because I don't think any of you are likely Jews in here. We're all Gentiles. And the good news that, that he has come for us is, is overwhelmingly and staggeringly good news. And these people had a hard time even acknowledging it or seeing it because it was so radical. So this is the Lord saying, this is my son. This is what I plan to do. And, and he's saying, I have a passion for the nations from now on. Matthew's book is written to the Jews saying, this is the Savior and God is now after the nations. We can be a part of it, or we cannot. but this is where he's going. This is what he's doing. So, this goes back to Daniel, the dream. If you know the dream, again, the statue representing the, the current kingdom, and then three that are going to come after it, and then this stone. It's a weird stone. that It doesn't come out of the mountains. It seems to kind of come out of nowhere, but it, but it breaks the feet of that statue, and they all crumble, and then it grows to a place that it covers all the world the way that the, the water covers the sea. And the interpretation of the dream is, this is what God's going to do. So Jesus arrives seemingly out of nowhere, and his kingdom is going to grow so immensely and so gloriously that eventually his kingdom will cover the whole earth, the way that water covers the sea, Jesus' kingdom will cover the whole earth. That's exactly what the end of Matthew's gospel is going to say. Matthew 28, where the Great Commission, he's sent out. All of his disciples are saying, okay, we've done all of this, right? Jesus has done all of these miracles. He's gone to the cross. He got up out of the grave. And all of it, he's saying, now go. Go and, and conquer the whole world. This is a new kingdom. And this stone will cover all of it. He's saying, this will be the final frontier. This is what he's working toward. This is the conquering of the nations. And, and he ascends, and he takes his seat at the right hand of the Father, and the Bible says he'll be there until all of his enemies are made his footstool. What does that mean? It means Jesus has intentionally conquered death in the grave. He's taken his place of power at the right hand of the Father, and he's now conquering the world, one soul, one person, one group at a time. And he's going to get people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And in Matthew 24, 14, he says, okay, when that has happened, when every tribe, tongue, and nation, whenever ethne, every people group, however they define that, however he defines that, doesn't matter, right? Until he comes, we can just assume it's not done. When they've all heard the good news, then the end will come. So he's saying, hey, this is the big picture. This is where we're working toward. This is what is happening. And the, the magi coming in this moment is sort of this coronating statement, this moment marking, hey, this is the king of all nations. This is the king of the world. So what do they do? These men of incredible power and prestige, they say, hey, wait, they come to Jerusalem, assuming this is the king of the Jews. <clears throat> the Jews, their, their capital city is Jerusalem, so they assume he's going to be born there. They come up, <clears throat> they arrive, and they start saying, hey, where's the king of the Jews? Well, the current king, Herod, takes offense to that because he'd been placed over the Jewish people by Rome. He's pretty proud of what he's doing, and he's made a lot of changes as king, and he's gotten a lot of recognition, and he takes offense to that. And honestly, his response to this inquiry actually affirms Jesus' kingship because he's very, uh, <clears throat> Herod is very threatened by him. So you imagine this. You imagine the scene there. Under Roman rule, Herod's been placed over 
the Jews as king, and these guys start showing up with it. Like, this is likely a noticeable caravan that rolls into town. Probably not just three dudes on their camels with some strange, like, blinged-out turbans. This is probably much more of a huge posse and group of people. They roll into town, it gets everybody's attention, and they start saying, hey, where's the, where's the king of the Jews that's been born? We're here to worship him. Right, and it says that Herod... <clears throat> Verse 3, uh, was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So this, this, this rattles the whole community. People start to, to hear, wait, there's a king been born? Wait, what's happening, right? They all are troubled. And so um, the king goes, hey, get all, these, get all of my wise men in here. Get all of these scribes and Pharisees, these people who are supposed to know the, the word, and, and ask them, what are they talking about? Where is he supposed to be born? Where is this king that's been promised supposed to come from? And they go, well, it says right here in, um, in Micah that he's going to come from Bethlehem. Right? And so Herod is listening. Right? The wise men go, okay, Bethlehem's five or six miles over. So, so they end up going there. Herod says, hey, um, down in verse 7, he says, hey, uh, and 8, he says, go, go find the child. And when you found him, come back to me and tell me where you found him so I can go worship him too. Now, we know that wasn't his intent. He says, hey, tell me where he is so I can go kill that joker so he doesn't take my throne. Right? That's Herod's intent. But the Lord Influence, he shows up in a dream, tells them not to do that, uh, and then shows up and tells Joseph, hey, get your family out of here. But the point is, these men, these men of prestige, come work, like looking, where is this man who's been born the king of the Jews? For we have come not just to see him, not just to acknowledge him, not to get him to sign our gold or whatever. Like, no, no, they're not just wanting a selfie with Jesus. They've come to do what? To worship him. To worship him. And so they do. They, they, go, they go and they, they find him. Verse uh, sorry, verse uh, 10, actually let's read verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold a star. Uh, listen, the way the star is moving and glowing, and, like, it, there's no, it's just not just a natural phenomenon, it's not a comet that was going really slow. It's, this, is, this is the Lord, this is his glory shining down. The, the glory of the Lord is a very present theme throughout the scripture. Right? Moses comes down from the mountain after hanging out, you know, just, just getting the law from the Lord. Moses' face is glowing. From the glory of the Lord. And all throughout we see this, the glory of the Lord. This is, the God has come to earth. This is Emmanuel, God with us, and his glory is showing. And so it's just a supernatural event. This star, it's not, doesn't need to be explained away in some natural, you know, study of whatever. No, no, this is just the Lord, this is just the glory of the Lord shining in a way. I mean, we have the story of, of God bringing his people out of Egypt, and he uses what? He uses this pillar, of, a cloud, right, that covers the people uh, that, that guides them, also covers them from the sun, right? And then it's a pillar of cloud by night that keeps them warm. Like we're not, we shouldn't be unfamiliar with God's, as God's people of him working in supernatural ways. So he sends this star and it guides them and it settles right over where Jesus is hanging out in this home as a less than two-year-old kid. And they saw the star, verse 10. Well, verse 9, it says, it came to rest over the place where the child was. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And what did they do? They fell down. That's prostate. That's like full laying on their face and worshiped him. Like This is a significant acknowledgement from the most educated, like these influential people come and they lay prostate, they lay flat before this young child. They're paying homage to the king. And it's just, just a quick note, not to, not to start a, a fight, but just, it, it, they worshiped him, not them. Right? Like, there is no, like, Mary was used by God, but she is not the point. Right? Joseph was used by God. They're, they're not the point. They worship him, the, the child. Like, it, they worship this young man. Can you imagine that? And they bring him these gifts. They bring him these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And no doubt, that was to, um, to confirm the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3, when it says, a nation shall come to your light. Again, if you're not familiar with the Bible, this is written hundreds of years before. God telling his people what he was going to do. And, and he's talking of the Christ, of the Messiah. And he says, nations shall come to your light. Right? So there's a light that's going to come, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. And, and then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. We see that from them. They, 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 uh, in verse 10 of, of back to Matthew 2, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. This is not just like a, 
stop along the way of a journey. Oh, this will be cool. Let's get a picture with this kid. This is exceedingly great joy. At the end of a long journey, they are not disappointed with what they see. They have joy that leads them to worship. Because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of nations shall come to you. They're bringing their wealth. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. So the Lord brings this to pass. It's an it's a additional confirmation that this Jesus is who God said he was going to send. And it's crazy. They bring these gifts, and, and there is significance. Right? The gold is, is to say that he is indeed the king of his people, the, the, the frankincense is incense, you know, saying like, this is, this is going to be the great priest of the people. The priest would use incense in those days, and, and a priest was there to, to stand in between God, right, the holy God that people couldn't approach. The priest would approach God um, for the people and on behalf of the people. He'd be this mediator. Jesus is going to be the great priest of his people, so they bring him frankincense, uh, likely, um, you know, representing that, obviously fulfilling the, the prophecy in, in Isaiah chapter 60. And then the myrrh. The myrrh, myrrh is, a, is, is used as a fragrance. We see it often in the New Testament and the Bible, used as a, as a fragrance. Uh, young, we see it in Esther, young women using it as a, as a perfume to, to make themselves more attractive. But we see it most often used in burial preparation, right? We see it used in Jesus's. Like that's what the, the women had in their hands when they were going to prepare Jesus's body on the day they find that he's not in there anymore. So this is saying, hey, he's the king. Here's some gold. He is going to be the priest of his people. It's this frankincense. And then here's the myrrh to honor his sacrifice that he will indeed, he's the baby who was born to die. It's an incredible culmination all in this moment of what God has been doing, sending these guys from the east to come and worship in this way. And that's likely why we get the idea that there's three of them, that each of them had one gift. But, it, you know, they could have gone together and pulled together to buy that, that myrrh. I don't, I don't know. It could have been more than, more than three. But nonetheless, they bring these three gifts. So, wild story. Wild story. They worship. They give him the gift, verse 12. Then they get warned in a dream, hey, don't go back and tell Herod. So they departed on their own way, and they head back home. Here's what I want us to take away. God has a plan. He has a plan. Like, for the world, right? For our country. But all the way down to like for you, for you and I, like for like he has a plan. And, and God clearly sees hundreds and, and thousands of years down the road. He knows where he's headed. He knows what he's going to accomplish. And what he's doing right now is working toward that end. Okay, now that sounds good as a, as a theory. We need to apply it to our lives, right? That what's actually happening in our lives is for God's purposes all the way down the road, right? Two days from now, two years from now, two centuries from now. He knows where he's headed, and, he, and he's using what's going on in our lives to get to that end. I want to read a final verse from Acts 17. When Paul is, is, is teaching these, again, philosophy people, the, the, some of the most educated people gather at Mars Hill to have these conversations and share their ideas and to talk about what's going on in the world. Paul steps up and, and preaches the gospel to these guys. And one of the things he says in Acts 17 is he says, and he made everyone, or every, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Right? That, that's how God brought us to be. From one man came all of the nations of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each of us. What does that mean? It means, listen, where, like, God has a plan for history so much so that he has determined where, like, that you would live here at this time. Anybody, <laughs> I've been having some, our kids are doing U.S. history, we've been talking about taxes and different things. It's brought some curious conversations about our state, right? And one of them like, well, why don't we move? I'm like, well, the Lord has us here, right? Um, and, and so some of you wonder, like, why do we live here? Like, why, why are we paying these taxes? Like, why is this? Like, but here's the deal. The Lord has you here on purpose. So what this is saying is like, it's not accidental that you live where you live in the time that you live, right? And, and in the neighborhood that you live it. 
and work the job that you work or raising the kids that you're raising or that your kids are playing the sports that they're playing and around the other families that they're around, right? This goes on and on and on. None of this is accidental, it says. Paul says he's doing all of this on purpose. He's working toward a big finale where all nations know him and all who have trusted him get to worship him forever and rule with him forever. And right now, whatever's going on in your life is serving that purpose, is serving that end. That's, again, that's, that sounds good. Okay, cool, cool. There's a purpose for my life. And maybe it's easy to, to sort of think, like to acknowledge that when things are going well. You're like, of course God's using me. I'm nailing this, right? The kids are great, right? They're going to change the world, likely, right? And, you know, I'm awesome. Things are going well. You're like, all right, this is cool. But listen, let's not over-romanticize this. Because a whole lot of what we see in the Scripture is really hard times, right? On the surface, this sort of sounds like coffee cup material, right? Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, right? To prosper you, not to harm you, right? Listen, that has some more context to it that is coming some really hard times for those people that he's saying that to. They're in the midst of exile. They're in the midst of some hard stuff. And the Lord says, hey, I, I, yeah, I got plans for you. And it is to prosper you. But right now it's hard. So we need to, we need to zoom back into our life and ask the question, okay, well, what about when it all seems to be falling apart? What about when it all seems to be collapsing? What then? Is God still in control? Like, what, 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 does he still have a plan? Is he, is, he, is he still going to use us, or is he kind of given up on me, or has he moved on to something big? You know, a lot of times, I don't know if you, you struggle with this, but you, struggle to, you start to pray, and you go, man, God probably doesn't care about that. Like, God's got really big fish to fry, right? Does he really care about fill in the blank. But here's the deal. Like as we, as we try to draw some implications from Daniel, like some of us are asking the questions, well, what about right now when the, the moral fabric, uh, fabric of our society seems to be, you know, uh, fading away or getting, un, or is unraveling, right? What about things when it seem to be falling apart? And, and, and what you need to know is that's exactly what was happening in Daniel's world. His world was literally falling apart. The, the nation that he knew and that he found comfort in, his home was taken over and he was plucked up out of his home and taken to a foreign land and he was likely made into a eunuch and, and he was indoctrinated. He's placed into this place where it, it's not just corporate persecution of his people in general. Like, yeah, I know we are being persecuted. It's very real to him personally. Taken, trafficked, like losing his name, being forced into, I want you to think about Daniel, being forced into a re-education program where they're pushing a wildly secular and state-serving worldview. Okay? Let's say that again. Daniel's placed into a, a re-education, an indoctrination program where they are pushing a wildly secular and state-serving education program, right? In that moment is when Daniel decides, I'm going to be faithful anyway. I can't control all of these things, but I can control my faithfulness. And he says, I'm going to serve my God. I'm going to remain faithful. And not only, like God uses him, he used him mightily. Not only did God's purposes not fail, right? Not only did the world not collapse, God had a plan for his people in Babylon and in working through Persia and then through Greece and then through Rome. God was going to use all of that for his glory. He just, these people just think they're, they're, they're conquering. The Lord's using them. Not only did God's purposes not fail, but he actually worked in meaningful ways through Daniel, that Daniel's life was not forgotten about, that God was present with him, that God did some mighty things through him and for him, that, Dan that God showed up for Daniel in the midst of some of the hardest times in history. And so for us, man, as things get crazier, and they will, and we shouldn't be surprised by that, all right? God tells us there's gonna be a, a, a cycle of this nonsense until he comes back and gets rid of the nonsense makers. Right? There's going to continue to be cycles of kingdoms coming, rising, and falling. Don't be surprised by that. We need to have the truth anchoring us. God has made no covenant with our country. God, like, he's promised no particular outcome or destiny to America. But you know what? He has made a covenant with his people, with his church. And what he promises is, hey, the gates of hell won't prevail. We win this thing. I win this thing. Come be on my side. On the right side of history means being with Jesus. 
When we have that in mind, we're able to, to see that, okay, even what's happening now doesn't mean God has been thrown off his plan and I can be faithful right now in the midst of this and cling to that covenant and know that, man, he's, he's made a covenant with us as his people and he's promised to be with us always to the end of the age when he conquers all, when his kingdom covers the whole earth like water of the sea. And he intends to use us to that end, right? He's gonna use us even when things are really hard, even when things are jacked up, even when we are unable to make the connection between what God is, what's happening in our life right now and what God is wanting to accomplish in the world. Like we're not always gonna see those things, but by faith we keep following him. By faith we keep putting one foot in front of the other and we keep trusting him. We see God has a big picture in mind. And even when we can't see it, what's going on in our life is serving his greater glory and his purposes. And his heart toward us is good. His covenants toward us scream at us, this is what I promise you, that no matter what's going on, all of my power, all of my omniscience, all of it is focused on accomplishing this good for you, for us, for his glory. But we're, if we're on his side, if we're in his kingdom, it affects us as well. So we need to rejoice and take heart in that and be faithful in that and not sell short what is, what is happening right now, how we're being used. What, what might generations later point back to what's happening in your life right now? I think back to the two men that stopped at my mom and I's home, I don't know, 25, 26 years ago, and invited us to Bible school, invited me to Bible school. Like, they probably weren't going, you know what? This may change the world. It's like, hey, we should be faithful right here. Let's invite this little country, country boy to church. Right? Now, listen, my life's been changed. Life's of my kids. Anybody that he gives me the favor or ability to influence in my pastorate has been changed because of those guys. 25 years ago, just knocking on the door in a little log cabin out in the country in Pope County saying, hey, would you guys want to come to Bible school? The Lord uses that. How does he want to use you and us in the midst of this world to serve his glorious end? Let's not be numb to that. Let's be intentional in seeking that. Let's be faithful in the midst of that. Let's pray. God, help, help us. We need it. Help us to not just go, okay, cool, that's another sermon. We can just move on. Let us lean in. Lean into your goodness. Lean into the story of Christmas affirming that you're a promise-keeping God, that you have not left us, that you are with us, and that you intend to keep every prom every, the promise of every word you've ever, ever given. Help us to respond appropriately to that with faith. It's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen.